Oh, well, right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Data Analysis uh, Part 2, in which I want to look at um, descriptive statistics. So before we look at methods for learning from data, I do want to have a lecture on talking about what are, uh, what is data, or uh, how do we describe observations. And then I'll also talk about some examples of how we need to distinguish between what what data is or what is a descriptive statistic. We need to distinguish between that and the interpretation of the data if we want to avoid um, some hazards. So I'll show some examples of that. Uh, before we start, I'll show some examples. Uh, oh, no. Um, so I'd, I've got a recap slide, actually. Um, so this introductory slide, however, is just here uh, to um, uh, prove uh, that uh, you can enjoy doing some uh, you can enjoy doing some data analysis and uh, that you can receive prizes for doing data analysis so I know this because I, I wrote down this example from a few years ago in 2015 when it was a nice summer day and everyone was away from the department so I was idly listening to the test match special on the internet um, <laughs> while I was doing some work apparently and uh, on the test match special I thought ah oh, I'll write this down for my statistics course uh, I don't think there was much happening in the game, so the commentators uh, went on a... Uh, um, there was nothing exciting happening. Uh, so the commentators asked, well, this is, uh, this is very odd. I think uh, the, uh, the Indian captain, uh, Mahendra Singh Dhoni, is, uh, he's, he's changing his bowlers an awful lot. In fact, I think he's uh, changed his bowlers every over since lunch. And uh, they have a, a, a resident statistician on the show who they trouble for the answers to difficult questions, and they thought they'd wind him up with uh, what was a seemingly impossible question to answer. Said, uh, so, Andrew, uh, is that, uh, is that uh, the statistic for the most bowling changes that have ever happened in a, a test match session, Andrew? And they clearly thought this was an impossible question for him. They said, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but uh, if you give me a few minutes, I can find out for you. And ten minutes later, he was able to give them examples of uh, four previous matches when there had been just as many bowling changes. And he was able to do this uh, not because there was anything, not because of anything difficult about dealing with data when there is uncertainty, which I said is in large part that's why there's a whole branch of mathematics called statistics and data analysis. But instead, just because he'd uh, uh, very carefully done his data collection and recorded it in a way that didn't lose the information he needed, so that he could then write himself a computer program. I think he's quite good at that and uh, to get the computer to dredge through uh, for the examples of interesting matches in the past. So you can, you can win prizes for this. And uh, so just, just to just prove that uh, some, of the, some of the things that you're going to learn about, these are valued by people. They'll give you an enormous, an enormous silver cup. Um, and you can be well thought of on the television, even though, from a scientific point of view, there's nothing particularly difficult uh, in uh, doing this kind of uh, descriptive statistics and data analysis. Still, people enjoy it. Um, but that's uh, where we've got to so far, as we've said, there is this kind of work. Uh, but there's also um, the thing that we might need to do scientifically. We might need to learn from evidence. And in general, when we learn from evidence, we're learning about something where the conclusion is going to be uncertain. And the method which I said I want to look at mathematically is the Bayesian 
approach, which is to say what you know after your data arrive is what you knew before you got any data plus what the data told you. And I want to go on to look at um, methods we can do some interpretation doing using that approach. And also we'll use that so that we can use that as a um, to frame uh, the idea of experiment design. So how, uh, what, what is a properly designed experiment that won't lead you to uh, go wrong once you do this analysis. Um, but as I said today, we'll look at descriptive statistics and I'll, before we do that, I'll show you some image data analysis because I didn't quite sh show that in the first introductory lecture. Okay, uh, good. Image data analysis is something I wanted to um, cover as once we've talked about data analysis in general, my work is um, computational image analysis. It's my research. So I'm interested in learning scientific things, probably numerical scientific estimates from image data. Um, uh, here's some image data. This picture on the right is a, an electron micrograph of a spore. A spore is like a bacteria seed. And some bacteria have this a special property uh, that they, uh, they live normally, and some of these things are, uh, and uh, some of them live normally, and they're important. Uh, some of these spore formers, like C. difficile, an important antibiotic resistant uh, infection, and anthrax, an important soil, well, actually, it's Bacillus anthracis, is a microorganism which lives in the soil and can cause the disease anthrax in cattle potentially in people. So uh, these are um, these interesting microorganisms, but they have this property that when they run out of food, uh, they, uh, they don't just die like a normal life form. Instead, they produce these small seeds called endospores. And the endospore has an armored protein coat, which helps it to stay dormant. And it can live in the soil for decades or 100 years or more. And then when it encounters some food, so when a, when a cow comes and sniffs up the anthrax spore, it can germinate. And even though you thought the area was completely safe, uh, it, can, it can once again cause some diseases. So these things are interesting from a biology and health or <coughs> a biosafety point of view. Uh, but these spores are also interesting just from a scientific point of view because they're so uh, remarkably tough. Um, not only can they survive for decades, but if you uh, put some spores into some boiling water, which you think kills bacteria, they'll just think they're having a nice warm bath. And then once they cool down and they're put on some food, they can germinate and start to grow. And this is why you should never, in general, uh, you should not eat rice which has been boiled the previous day, uh, because the Bacillus cereus is the, uh, one of the, is the spore former which can live on the rice which, if left to its own devices, survives being cooked, quite likely. <laughs> now, this is controversial, though, because obviously you sort of can. But still, from a biosafety point of view, the, the general view is that you should never do anything again with rice when, once, it, when, once, it, once it's been cooked one day. Now, well, and yeah, but but I know people do, and I mean I've done this that I've I've done fried rice the next day, and I also know that it's potentially fine if you potentially fine if you put it in the fridge, but the people who do spore microbiology assure me that in principle, most rice has these spores on. If not very thoroughly boiled, um, then 
they'll probably survive. And in principle, they're there to give you food poisoning, apparently. But, I mean, I know that this is not something that always happens, and some people might be resistant. You might have built up an immunity. <laughs> but nonetheless, anyway, these, these, these things are potentially they're scientifically interesting. And part of the reason they survive these things is because they have the armor coat. But the armor coat is this thin gray layer, and it's about 100 nanometers thick. But we know that it contains about 70 different proteins. And it's thought they might have this uh, a structure like the skins of an onion, where different proteins in different layers do different things. The outermost ones might have a protective role from chemicals. The inner ones may be a structural role. It would be interesting to know exactly what the structure was so that you could comment on, therefore, what each protein might do. But that's very difficult to do because it's so small. Uh, you can't see chemically specific proteins in electron microscopy. And if you use the normal thing of doing fluorescence microscopy, so you make one of the proteins fluorescent by putting a, a fluorescent fusion protein on it or something, then you're out of luck because you end up with uh, images like these. These are spores which have one coat protein has been made fluorescent, but because the coat is so thin, 100 nanometers, and you know that conventional optical imaging is diffraction limited, what you see is a fluorescent blur and the diffraction limiting, you can't typically resolve things smaller than 200 nanometers conventionally. You simply can't see the difference in location between the different proteins. Um, so I'm interested in, can we improve on this? Uh, because we want to use fluorescent proteins because they let us look at specific, uh, specific proteins, uh, but we want to improve on the resolution. So I said, can we do that? Um, so I have my colleague Graham Christie who does the microbiology, and I do the image analysis. So he tells me, so these are some spores, Eric. They have this sort of uh, almond shape. And I told him, no, that's not an almond. That's what we call in maths. That's what we call something which is well approximated as a prolate ellipsoid of revolution, which is this shape there. So I told him that's a better name for it. And this has an equation, this shape. And the um, reason I want to use this is because what I can do is, if I know about how a microscope works, I can produce an equation which relates the structure that there is to the image data that you might see. Uh, and I've made it look probably a bit more imposing than it is. Uh, I've just said, here's my spore at the top, and it has a radius A. This is a simplified spore, which is just a sphere. And I know my microscope has some blur radius, uh, which I'm going to call sigma. And I know that my... Uh, microscope imaging system, it just works by taking a good description. Is It just takes the object, convolves it with the blur radius, the response function of the microscope, and that gives you a blurred image. Uh, if you do that, I get an equation for uh, this equation for the, um, the brightness of the image at different points within the image data. And this is, this is very nice. I've got an equation. Does it work? Um, well, uh, this is what my uh, image prediction is for a sphere, and then on the right-hand side, that's my image prediction for a, an ellipsoidal spore. And the question is, does it look like my original data uh, there? It looks a bit like it, uh, but we can, be, uh, we can be more precise about that. So I can then, in principle, I can say, if this is my image data on the left, uh, here is my, on the right, this is my model, which I would like to fit to the data. Uh, but I can iteratively 
change the parameters of my model. This is data analysis. I can iteratively improve on my model parameters uh, until I have something which is uh, as close as possible a fit to the image data. Um, in as close as possible in some sense, like minimize the sum of square differences between the brightnesses in each pixel. And once I've got this uh, best possible model fit, then I ask the question, um, does it tell me about the real structure? So I've got there, let's say, some measured data from a spore image, and then here, uh, the blue lines show me the brightness of the image data at different positions along the x-axis, and the red lines are my model fit. And I say, that looks pretty good uh, without doing any further analysis. This looks like a very good fit. In fact, it's so good that I think my model probably therefore does capture something of the truth of what the actual object is doing. And so the parameters of my model, which are just two lengths, two axis lengths and a rotation, um, probably are, to a good approximation, those are the actual axis lengths of the objects that are giving me these images. And I can apply that to lots of different spore images, provided they're conveniently spread out on the microscope slide, which makes it easier to deal with. And I can apply that to lots of them, and then actually I get the information that I wanted to know. Um, I can, I'm no longer limited by diffraction limitation because that's just a parameter in my model. And I've separated that from the size of the protein shell. So I can, for these spores, I can say uh, the, the size, the location of the protein shell is such and such a radial position. And I can do that very accurately. And I can produce a bar chart for different proteins that then do have the resolution to tell me which protein is in which layer and then that lets us comment on what does each protein do. So that's what, we're, that's what we went on to do. Uh, what's a bit flashier than that, though, is that not only can you make a bar chart, but if you have a, an equation for an image, uh, you can take the parameters that you fitted to your blurred image data, and you can do something that looks like cheating. Uh, you can take those parameters, you can feed them back into the equation for the image data, but because one of your parameters is just the blur radius, and that's just a number at this point, I can say I would like to know what it would look like if my microscope was not blurred. And uh, so I then get, instead of the raw data on the left, I can get a reconstruction on the right. And you might intuitively say this is cheating because this is something that is done in television and it can't work. That you can't just take a rubbish camera image and improve it, that's impossible. In this case, it's made possible because I said I have this other information about the spore. So I knew I wasn't just looking at anything. I specifically said I was looking at fluorescent ellipsoidal protein shells. And so what I've done essentially is to combine the data that I had with other information that I have, knowledge that spores are basically this shape. And then I get, from the combined data, I can get more precision than I could have got from the raw data alone. So that's some super-resolution microscopy. And if you do that for a field of spores, you get that picture on the right. And if you do that for, um, you do the average for, say, a red protein layer and a green protein layer, then you then do often have the resolution to separate them apart. In other words, to do something that's useful for the, the biologists to have a look at where these proteins are. So I quite enjoyed that project. Uh, I still do some more of that. But um, that's... Um, image data, so I've shown you that image data and the kind of analysis that I'm interested in. I'll probably set something a bit simpler than that.
but it is something I know something about. Um, okay, there's a bar chart showing different protein locations. Uh, the interesting result of this is that we get the protein locations to within 10 nanometers, which is much better than you can do with conventional imaging. Okay. So then I've got um, section, so chapter two in the handout, I wanted to talk about uh, descriptive statistics, or it says reporting and summarizing sample data. Um, so this is important before we go on to interpret data. I should say several things about what it is. Um, and we'll talk about graphical representation of data, and I'll talk about numerical statistics for describing data. If this was a classical statistics course, we'd talk about both what I'm going to show you, things like sample mean, sample standard deviation. We'd talk about them both as a way of describing a sample of data that you've got, but also at the same time we'd talk about those for doing um, inference, for drawing conclusions about other samples you haven't seen. In this chapter, I just want to, though, talk about descriptions. Um, the, fact is, the fact that if you take uh, a lot of measurements of, say, uh, the weight of some bricks coming off a production line, if I just want to describe the sample I've got, that's what I'm using this chapter for. If I wanted to make predictions about future bricks, then you could do that, but that's, that would be inferential statistics. And it's um, something which I defer because I want to do a different kind of inferential statistics, which I'll be doing in chapters four and five. Okay. So descriptions of data then are pretty straightforward. Um, so here are simply some things that we uh, look for as virtues. These are 2.0 A to C uh, when we have a description of data. So in general, when you're producing your graph, you think about your audience and then you think, which of these virtues do I most worry about? And I've said clarity, fidelity, and completeness. So for casual readers, you're probably looking for producing a nice, simple representation of your data. Uh, so you go more for clarity. Um, if you're talking about research data for um, specialists, then you're worrying about completeness, so not losing any detail. Regardless of which of those are, you have um, fidelity as an important thing. So um, honestly representing the information in the observations. So if you do any kind of uh, summarization of what you're looking at, some information will tend to be lost. Um, you should always look for displays which don't lose descriptions about the, don't lose information that you might ever need in the future. So. Um, in image data, we talk about lossless versus lossy compression, where lossless is a, an approach where we don't lose. We could exactly, if we had um, image data where we had 100 by 100 pixels, each with a value from 0 to 255, lossless compression was we wouldn't lose. Um, we would be able to exactly recover each number um, if from the compressed data. Uh, lossy compression in image data means we might not exactly recover the right numbers, we just get something close. And there's the same issue with fidelity of uh, data descriptions. So we might do a graph, but you might forget to tell people some things about it, and then they couldn't actually work out what kind of uh, observations you got it from. Um, so especially these days, now that we have 
if, if you've come across like open data as a concept, I wonder if you have. So if you publish research papers now, you have the concept of open data, um, which quite possibly has come about not only because it's nice to make full data sets available to the public, but also because I think a lot of journals were probably quite rightly getting cynical that some people were making up their data. Certainly there were some, a very few people were famously caught making up their data. Um, but uh, there is now, anyway, a very good thing of um, publishing your raw data sets, so putting them on some kind of archive. So for lots of funding organisations like the UK Research Councils, that's a requirement. So hence, if you publish a paper in Cambridge, you'll probably have to prepare a folder of open data, which is something like, um, if it was me, it could be, here are my, image, here are my uh, images from which I computed these spore sizes. So I'd have to give them that, those 100 pictures or something, and preferably also the software, which I also publish. Um, so that you don't, uh, so that so that you have this concept now that you can actually store all of your data online and make it available to people. Um, in the past, you physically couldn't have done that, so there was um, there was more effort on uh, producing these producing basically graphs which summarise your data. In which case, you lose contact with the measurements that you had, uh, but you have something that's easy to publish, and you don't need to take up gigabytes of space storing it. Um, so despite the fact that you can now archive all of your data, it's still important to understand these um, efficient representations uh, for two reasons. First of all, you always need to present to people nice, simple graphics which prove whatever conclusion you're reaching visually rather than give them pages of numbers which they couldn't possibly deal with. The other reason you need to understand how to summarise data nicely is because many times you'll collect a lot of data, but you do need to simplify it into some summarised forms, like averages for three different treatment groups. Uh, you, you might need to simplify it a lot before you can even put it into a data analysis, because your data analysis uh, might be a straightforward one that only takes simple numbers in, uh, in order to give you conclusions out. Um, so those are some, some things I had to say about describing data. Uh, I think I wanted to show these two graphs as an example of how if you're not very careful about describing data, then you can be led astray. So here's, uh, on the right-hand side, this is from a, a BBC article. And on the right-hand side, this is, um, uh, in both cases, this is published in 2016. This is... Uh, data from Eurostat, the EU statistics organisation. So, and they're both about the uh, cost of electricity of different types. Um, um, because, actually, the BBC made a what looks like a small mistake in its text, but it's actually fairly critical. Um, because of the way they've uh, described their graphs, uh, you can get, um, you you can be led to the wrong conclusions about what they mean. So on the right-hand side, we have a bar chart of uh, electricity, electricity generation costs for different sources in pounds per megawatt hour. So the important thing to comment here is that we have, uh, what have we got? Um, onshore wind, they say, costs for electricity generation 60, 62-ish pounds per megawatt hour. And they also say on their graph, combined cycle gas, which is the cheapest of the 
gas-based electricity sources. And they also say 63 or 64 pounds per megawatt hour on their bar chart uh, value there. Now, it does include a... Uh, that does actually include a carbon tax of, I think, £14 per megawatt hour, but that's a tax which is actually paid. So those two bars, the point is, are about the same. Combined cycle gas is the cheapest fossil fuel el electricity source. So the strong implication of this graph is that this renewable energy uh, based on wind is as, as cheap as conventional power generation. So that's one graph. On the right-hand side graph, you've got something which badly conflicts with this. So you've got the percentage for different uh, European countries, percentage of electricity generated by wind plus solar, which we can basically read as wind because most countries don't have lots of solar. And you have on the right hand the y-axis, um, cost of domestic electricity, average paid by people uh, in cents per kilowatt hour. And you have these cloud of points and you've got what looks like a very contradictory trend compared to the graph on the right. Um, there's a couple of outliers here, by the way. Lithuania doesn't count because they don't generate all of their electricity. They import a large fraction, and so they generate a high proportion of wind electricity, but what they actually use is uh, more coal-based. Germany's an outlier. It has very expensive domestic electricity for regulatory reasons. Um, essentially, they've transferred some of the costs of industrial electricity onto domestic electricity. So ignoring some outliers, you've got a pretty clear trend, I would say, that as you have uh, going from zero to uh, 25 or 30% uh, electricity generated by wind, the domestic electricity price roughly doubles, which strongly implies that the uh, wind power, the wind electricity is much more expensive and that... Um, I mean, it wouldn't be right to take it to the extreme of 100% by extrapolation, but that would suggest if we did, um, then it suggests that each of the uh, kilowatt hours of wind power is about, uh, let's see, it increases 100%, about five times the price of, uh, let's say, coal, if you've got 0% wind power. So those graphs are apparently extremely contradictory, and actually they're not, but the reason, the reason to actually... Well, would you like... There's also, by the way, a couple of reasons this might come about, um, let's say, honestly. Uh, one of those reasons is you might say countries which have high fractions of wind power tend to be the wealthier countries, like in this case Denmark at the extreme. And uh, wealthier countries tend to have high salaries and therefore high costs for everything. So it's not, in this case, necessarily the fact that Denmark's using wind power that's making their electricity expensive. It's simply the fact that everything is more expensive um, in the countries which choose to have more wind power. So you can come up with explanations like that. Uh, but the real one is simply that this graph on the right um, is talking about electricity generation, and this graph on the left is talking about electricity, uh, which obviously people are buying, so they're consuming electricity. And what the graph on the right uh, doesn't correctly describe, and the text in the article explicitly gets wrong, is they say that this does incorporate the cost of um, integrating the generated electricity into a, uh, a grid, and it doesn't. So that, that's where the difference in cost comes about, in large part. Um, this is your cost of generating a, a kilowatt hour on the right-hand side, but not generating it on demand. 
on the right hand side you have electricity which is being bought by people so obviously it's being bought it's being bought on demand when they switch on the lights or something and what is not taken into account in this right hand side graph is that if you install if you generate a megawatt hour of electricity from uh, wind sources uh, you need to somehow pay more money to make sure that's integrated into a, a total power system which can supply electricity on demand. In a simple way, you could think of doing that with batteries, which would be enormously expensive. Um, what's actually done is you put it onto a grid that also has um, open-cycle gas turbines, uh, which can be put up and down to balance out your wind power generation. Open-cycle gas turbines are very expensive, compared to combined cycle gas, and that's how you end up with a higher price. But this is not an easy conclusion to make. Uh, you need to read very carefully and fix a mistake, uh, unless the statistics, the description of the data has been done exactly right. So once I've described it as generation and consumption, it's not, so, it's not too difficult to see where there's a bit of a difference between the two. Um, and I don't show you this in order to massively depress you about the future of renewable electricity, uh, but I do want the statistics to be presented um, correctly. Um, so you need, you need to have what I say, this virtue of fidelity in your data descriptions. Uh, don't lose something that important, and you do need to bear in mind what's going to be important for people interpreting the graphs. Okay. Um, and then I've got a couple of sections on... I'm not sure why I put this in. Probably just because. Uh, dot plots, bar plots, scatter plots. I talked about, well, I thought if I'm doing describing data, I should mention something about all of these things. Um, so you might have different kinds of measured data. We'll stick with uh, sort of numerical measurements. Um, essentially, if you get a not very nice to look at list of measurements, this example says, just measurements of six measurements of viscosity from apparently the same liquid. How do you represent that? Uh, you could just give the numbers. Uh, a nicer thing you can get things to plot for you these days are these dot plots. So these are one-dimensional representations. Um, it's uh, showing you each numerical value is shown exactly without any kind of loss in the graph. And when you have multiple uh, values which are on top of which are too close to each other, you the, the computer offsets them for you, so you get a line of dots like that. Um, this is quite a nice representation. You find it in quite a lot of bio, bio, bio papers, um, some, some kind of dot plots like that. Um, in practice, um, it's not actually that easy to get numerical data from a graph, so you should always be, in your supporting data, you keep the exact values um, for, your, for your open data publication. Um, but dot plots can look quite nice. Here's, an, here's a nicer example. Uh, this is uh, guinea pig tooth growth rate. Um, here are some nice features of it. That it's, uh, this one happens to have been given out by a, an example of just an example plot in our studio. But I don't specifically need you to learn to use any of these. You can use whichever graph plotting thing you want for your reports. Um, it's just this one's quite pretty. You have to, uh, what, oh, what do you have here? Um, right, so this is the length of a particular tooth in guinea pigs uh, shown after a set period of treatment with a daily dose in milligrams per day of vitamin C. Guinea pigs 
are one of the very few animals, uh, humans are another, that can't produce their own vitamin C. Um, the reason is that in their evolutionary history, as in ours, uh, they used to eat so much of it, they simply lost the gene uh, without it being particularly important to keep. Without vitamin C, uh, your teeth don't grow properly. Uh, so this is a, a demonstration of that, uh, that they show that uh, for the guinea pigs given not much vitamin C, uh, they only gained, uh, over some period of time, 10 millimetres of tooth. Sounds, uh, sounds quite a lot, actually but they seemingly need lots of tooth. Uh, meanwhile, the ones given one or two milligrams per day had uh, 20 or even more millimetres of tooth uh, to work with. Uh, so obviously they were then much happier. Um, so these are dot plots. Um, each of these separate clusters um, is nice and clearly distinguished from each other, and it's nicer than giving an array of numbers. Um, at this point, let's say something about... Uh, when you're putting your graphics into your reports, have you come across vector graphics versus uh, raster graphics? I'll say, I'll say something briefly about it, because this is something that you should all see for writing reports. Um, so this slide shows you... Uh, this is on the top. This is the raster graphics. Is, the, so is this plot on the top? And what I've done is I've done a screen grab. I've put it into whichever was the fastest to open image processing software. I've cropped it down and I've saved it as a PNG, uh, my preferred raster graphics, but JPEGs, TIFFs, GIFs, this all applies the same. And I've got a graph, and if you download any of my lecture slides, you'll discover this is the horrific method I use because it's quick for making PowerPoint slides. Uh, I just take a screen grab and crop what I want for the slides. It's okay for that, but it's fairly horrible if you want to publish, if you want to do a printed report, or if you want to give people a PDF that they can look at and scale, in which case you much would prefer to be dealing with uh, one of these vector graphics. So in practice, this means you either want uh, a PDF print of the graph or a, an EPS, maybe. PDF is probably easier to deal with these days, or the Windows um, meta files are often also vector graphics. So if you do Windows Save As Meta File or something. Um, so the difference between the two is this, that my raster graphics looks like this. Um, and I have horrible blockiness if I zoom in because it's simply the data itself is, say, 500 by 300 pixels. And if I zoom in, they simply look blockier as I make them take up more screen pixels. Uh, in comparison with my nice vector graphics, I have not pixels, but I have descriptions of um, objects by... So these are... Okay, so the circles are not necessarily that nice, but if you're... Um, things like your figure two, you have... Um, you have not... Uh, pixels which become blocky when zoomed in on, but you have a, essentially a description of the line so that your, uh, your computer can deal with that. Uh, this is very nice, and that's something that you should do. Uh, I, I, I thought it would be useful to mention it uh, for when you're uh, making nice graphs for reports, that when you can do save as vector graphics, you, you should do that. Um, good.
Okay, this slide and this slide are just a couple in case people wanted to have a look at. I'm not requiring you to use one piece of software or another, uh, but if you wanted to look at some tutorials, I'll, um, those links will be in the slides, which you can download from Moodle uh, later. Um, and it, it's got how to make those plots. Um, so you can get tutorials that will do quite a nice job of... Does anyone read The Economist? It's a terrible magazine. Um, <laughs> I, I, I quite enjoy reading it. I enjoy reading it for the maps and the graphics. Um, so the joke about The Economist magazine is that this guy was on a flight to Japan. And uh, this guy was from uh, um, England. And he was sat next to a guy to, from Japan and another guy from the United States. And he said to the guy from Japan, ah, so you're reading The Economist, yes. It's a very good, uh, it's not very good on Matt on European uh, uh, reporting, but it's very good, I find, on uh, reporting from uh, overseas. And the Japanese guy says, oh, that's strange. It's terrible on Japanese reporting, but I thought it was very good as a description of what's going on in Europe. The guy from America said exactly the symmetric thing, that everyone thinks The Economist is terrible at reporting about anything they know. <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless, they think it's very convincing on things they don't know anything about. And part of the reason for that is they do nice graphics. And so you can get a tutorial on how you can make nice economist-style graphics of, uh, what is this, corruption index, whatever that is, on the x-axis. And some other thing on the y-axis. Um, so there's a lot that you can do with nicely presenting uh, data. Again, in terms of uh, are we uh, giving a faithful representation of what we've actually measured, uh, we've probably done, this has probably done a very good job of that. And it's made use of colour and scatter plots, blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, there's a link for if you wanted to learn how to do that. Um, bar charts. Bar charts are dot plots, except the dots are rectangles, which stack on top of each other. Um, there's a, unlike the dot plot, which should put the dots in exactly the correct position, uh, the bar charts do some binning so that everything that's near 140 centipoise of viscosity has been binned and made into a big bar. Um, so you've got to be there a bit of loss, but you choose, you choose, you have arranged not to have any meaningful loss. Uh, different kinds of bar charts have different names. Um, um, the difference between this and dot plots is that your bar charts can often be used for qualitative categories, like numbers of people who've got a car which is red uh, wouldn't easily go on a, a dot plot with a numerical axis because you couldn't put red, green and black onto a, a numerical axis. Um, and of course you've seen histograms uh, which are um, bar charts but they're arranged so that they look a lot like a probability distribution so that you have um, you have something you have a y-axis which effectively becomes a frequency uh, frequency density um, which you can easily arrange by just having like bars of equal width and making sure the bars uh, touch each other on a numerical axis okay so the types of types of representation some of which you can learn about if you want to follow some of those links um, scatter plots are for two-dimensional data, um, and they may uh, look a lot better. 
So here's an example scatter plot. This is uh, people treated with uh, people. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this is one of these studies where they do um, uh, pairwise treatment. So you have someone treated with the drug for six months, and they uh, measure uh, after six months of not having the drug, they measured this property FVC, or it just means lung volume, basically. So how much they can breathe in, and then they treat them with the drug, and then they measure lung volume again after six months of that, and they get so these are then you have two-dimensional data, and you have a scatter plot, which shows uh, each point represents one person who's been measured twice, and in this plot, the important thing to measure is this line. Uh, it needs to be mentioned, this is not a fit line. This looks a lot like a fit line. It's actually, and this is where you need a proper description of it, it's actually the line y equals x. So this line is the line of exactly no effect, uh, where the uh, volume, the lung volume that they had without treatment with the drug is the same as the lung volume they had after being treated with the drug. So don't always read your captions and don't be misled. Uh, this, this, this graph pretty much guarantees this is a totally ineffective drug. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, people might think if you're, oh, you know, it's a straight line that improves, so it must be a brilliant drug. You might think. Uh, question: Would the would the guinea pig data be better plotted as a scatter plot? So your guinea pig data was like that. This is different amounts of drug that the, the uh, different, uh, milligram, so different milligram doses of vitamin C, and then that's uh, one thing they've been given. That's one dimension of data and tooth growth on the uh, here the x-axis. Would this be rep better represented on a scatter plot? Is a question for you. Yep. Yep. You could technically have a dimension of size of the, 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 the marker on the plot representing mm -hmm. the amount of samples, but then that adds another layer of complexity that is not needed, I think. Yeah. I, I think that's quite right. So in this case, despite the fact you have two numerical measurements, one of them is amount of drug, the other one is tooth growth, um, the amount of drug is actually a classification, really. Um, there's just three different things that it can be. And... You're not, it's not very, you're not giving a random dose over the range. So uh, if, you were to, if you were to try and put the two dimensions of data, which I think looks nicely as a dot plot, onto a scatter plot, you'd end up with something that horribly looks like this. So you'd have dose, and you'd have just your doses forming three different vertical lines. And as you say, it's just um, some of them are on top of each other or, or, or hide each other. And it's just uglier than having the nice dot plot. Um, so that's, um, that's, that's all things to think about in choosing a representation. Um, OK, so you then might collect a lot of data. And you might say, well, we've done some graphs. Then we also need to. Uh, say some numerical things as well. Uh, so we could do that. Uh, we might need to say, here's, uh, here's just some of the data. This is like for different types of car, uh, mass 
on the x-axis, miles per gallon on the y-axis. And um, especially when you segment it by type of car, uh, you can get these statistics from this. You can get best fit lines. Um, you can get confidence intervals. Now, confidence intervals um, are a thing from sampling theory statistics. Uh, so I don't want to uh, look at that. I'm not. I'm not going to look at. I'm not going to look at drawing inferences in this lecture. Uh, but I will just say um, some things about uh, best fit lines in the sense that we can use them to describe data. Um, uh, I will do that in this section on numerical statistics. Actually, I might get into that. I might do that next time. Um, because here is... So here's a, a further plot, uh, which I thought uh, you might like to comment on for me. So this is, again, this is... I'm highlighting the danger of getting good descriptive statistics before you start to draw conclusions. So this is a picture of the, U of the USA. And we have here, um, in black, color-coded, we have counties in the USA where the kidney cancer death rate is among the highest 10% of kidney cancer death rates among all counties in the, in the, in the US. Okay, so these are color-coded black counties which have high kidney cancer death rates. Have a look at that. Have a think about what this might. Uh, is, there, is there is there a conclusion you can draw about these counties, where they are, and what these counties are like? And then have a look at this graph for the same thing, but the lowest, counties with the lowest 10%, or counties with kidney cancer death rates in the lowest 10% seen in all counties in the USA. Okay. And I think I've got these next to each Oh, I don't have them next to each other. That's the highest 10%, and that's the lowest 10%. So... Are just the counties colored black? Yes. So the counties are bigger. Like <laughs> some of them, some of them, um, some of them touch each other. But you're right; they do vary in size. Yeah. Can't conclude anything. I'd like to know what this would look like if it was just random, so like ten percent random points on the graph. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. How many of these highest 10% are there in California? So basically none. All the way around, I can't see that. I'm going to assume that's the ocean. Um, <laughs> or I'm going to say it's San Francisco and I'll ignore it. But um, So none in California. What? Where's Maine? Ah, no, Maine. Ah, yes, okay, this is one of the ones I couldn't find. <laughs> Where is it? It's, like, on the right. There. Uh, one above that one. Oh, very nice. There's none in that one. Yep. There's none in the one below. Yeah. Oh, Massachusetts. There. Somebody's <laughs> undergrad in the U.S. <laughs> no, I'm really quite good at this. I play this game with the undergraduates. <laughs>
Right, can you find South Dakota? Is it that? Right. Nah, it's fun. Anyway. No, is it? Is it that? No, no, it's not. It's not. I just said no. It's in Central. Oh, anyway, on the subject of vector graphics, the Mason-Dixon line, uh, which divides the state of oh, I can't remember. The Mason-Dixon line is arguably the first description, perhaps a very early example of a vector graphic, uh, because the line is described as. Um, it has like a start point and then it's described as a circular arc from this point to some further point and then a line at constant latitude or something like that. So the fact that you describe your line by um, points and then a circular arc of some length instead of as a raster graphic um, is an example of how that's the uh, a vector graphic. Anyway, sorry. Um, the conclusion which you would be wise to avoid making is that these high kidney cancer death rates mainly occur in the Midwest and the West, and you'd say this is because uh, the people living in the Midwest and the West are in very rural areas, and they have bad access to health care because they're, they're like out in the countryside, and they're exposed to agricultural chemicals, uh, which is probably very toxic and is causing cancer. So you could conclude that, <laughs> and then you could look at this graph, and you could this picture, and you could conclude, ha, the low kidney cancer death rates are in the Midwest and the West. And this, is, this comes about because these are nice rural areas, and people in nice rural areas are, um, they are robust sorts. So they're not, uh, they're, they're not made sick by being over-treated by the uh, plethora of medical doctors who infest the cities. And also, because they live in the nice countryside, they have a nice clean environment, and they don't breathe in the filthy pollution of the cities. Therefore, they have lower cancer rates. And you could, either of those might be right, uh, but in fact, uh, both of these maps are simply uh, counties with low population. And the reason this comes about is, so, um, rural, these rural places happen, they have quite low populations. If you have a low population, kidney cancer is a rare disease. Most likely, there's either no one with kidney cancer in the decade of interest, in which case the rate is zero and it's tied for joint lowest, or there's one person in a fairly small population and it's a high rate, and so obviously it's in the high 10%. So it's basically a map showing low county populations, and that's uh, something which is sort of lost by that uh, representation. So you should try not to lose such data. Um, and those are all things, I think, that you should think about in terms of collecting and presenting data before we uh, learn from it. Uh, but I think, well, when would you like to finish this lecture? Would you like to... F I can talk for five minutes. It depends how... What, what, what is people's timing like? Um, so in section 2.4, let's pretend we have one-dimensional data. I'll talk about the one-dimensional data, and then I'll just recap two-dimensional data um, in the next one. So one-dimensional numerical data... Uh, we might produce these graphs, but ultimately it could end up being complicated. And we might want to summarize data not just with a picture, but with uh, some uh, numbers which are computed from the data. And when you reduce data to just a few numbers, uh, those numbers which you use to summarize it are called statistics. So this is the second definition of statistics, meaning a number. Example, increase in corn yields, some fields in Iowa 
were divided in two. Half was sprayed to treat a particular disease, and the other half was not sprayed. And then it says the increase in yield in some units uh, was as follows. So you've got a list of numbers. And um, some things that you should know for when you read about stats in the literature. So these are sample values because they've actually been observed. Things which you've observed, uh, they're typically given uh, a name like small x subscript i, where i is the, the, the index, the observation, uh, from 1 up to n, which is in this case 14. Uh, you could also write it in these angle brackets like that. So x1, x2 is these numbers, minus 57, 37, dot, dot, dot. Um, Lowercase Latin characters like small x and small s are used in algebra to represent actual observed values of data, like the x1, which is minus 57, um, or values which are computed from some data. So s squared might be the variance, and it would be computed from actual data that you've observed if it's a small s. Um, uppercase Latin characters um, are usually used for random variables which are as yet unobserved values. Um, so capital XI before I measure, so a random variable, capital X1, might be uh, me talking about the as yet undetermined first observed value of this increase in yields. Uh, small X1 is minus 57, uh, and so it's a nice number. Uh, it is important to distinguish those if you want to set up more complicated or um, descriptions which will let you do more subtle things. Um, Greek characters are used to denote parameters of populations uh, from which the samples are drawn. So uh, true parameters of the world, like uh, the improvement, uh, the unknown real improvement from spraying to treat this disease, uh, might be given some Greek character, like alpha or something. Um, but th th those would be things that you're inferring uh, based on the data, the small x values that you've got. Okay. 